This is East Lansing Insider, brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. In this show, we break down all of the news and happenings in the East Lansing community. And now, today's East Lansing Insider. Hi, this is Alice Dreger, Executive Director and Publisher of East Lansing Info at eastlansinginfo.news. And we're here again with another edition of the East Lansing Insider podcast. And today we're broadcasting on July 4th, and so we're going to be talking about freedom of the press. Later in the program, what we're going to be talking about is a gas leak that happened in East Lansing in a neighborhood. And what happened, we found out through a lot of poking and prodding, is that the gas leak resulted from a gas main not being marked by a Mystic contractor. So we're going to be talking about what we did to try to find out information about that gas leak and what it's possible for us to do because we have freedom of the press in the United States. So we'll be doing that later in the program, and we'll be playing for you the 911 call from the contractor just after they hit the line. But first, joining with us is Brian Wassum, who is from Warner, Norcross, and Judd, a law firm that specializes in part in doing media defense law. And Brian is actually defending East Lansing Info in a suit brought by developer Scott Chappelle. But we're not going to be talking with him about that today. We're going to be talking about some more timeless issues with regard to freedom of the press. And I have with me also Emily Joan Elliott, who is the managing editor of East Lansing Info. So thanks both for being here. Um, Brian, can you talk a little bit about how freedom of the press looks in America today? Well, Alice, I mean, everything we talk about in terms of the current situation with freedom of the press is, is relative, right, compared to what it could be. We have some serious concerns. There are, there are always areas that need improvement. There are areas that are under threat that we need to be conscious of in defending. And certainly in, in this generation, perhaps more than in a long time, um, we have to do a better job at reminding people why it matters in the first place. Um, but at the same time, I mean, we're, we're privileged to be talking about these things in the United States that where where freedom of the press has always been part of the fabric of our society, right? And and we're we're lucky to be here and not in one of the many jurisdictions around the world where uh, it's a foreign concept. Even even in mature democracies, you know, you if you caught the news coverage of one of the British royals, whoever they are, I don't really pay attention to the individuals, but uh, one of them was commenting in the press about how he thought the the First Amendment was a bonkers concept and couldn't believe that uh, the, the press had such uh, free reign to, to say whatever it wanted. I mean, I, it, it boggles my mind that you could be in a, in a democratic society and not recognize the value of a free press. Well, talk to us. Why do you think the Founding Fathers chose to put it in the First Amendment specifically? I mean, I think it's significant that freedom of the press is ensconced in that very First Amendment to the Constitution. Well, sure. I mean, we had... Uh, experiences in the whole founding fathers era, trial of Peter Zenger, that sort of thing, where uh, journalists were being uh, pushed back against and persecuted for um, for publishing things that were unpopular. Uh, so we had, you know, timely reminders that it, this was an important thing. But you know, this was a time uh, when the Constitution was put together um, of a real examination of of what it was that made a free society free. What it would what it would take to keep it that way, as opposed to slipping into more of a monarchical kind of situation. And I think that they had the the good insight and the wisdom to realize that um, 
we're not going to have a republic, uh, one that is governed by the, the informed consent of the people without the people being able to inform themselves. So I think of freedom of the press in part as part of the safety net of America. And I'm looking down at what happened in Surfside, Florida, and I've been thinking about if an organization like ours had existed there and people had come to us and had complaints about a single building, we're the kind of hyper-local news organization that pays attention to single complaints about single buildings. We've actually done that with safety issues in other buildings here. What do you think is the impact on America as we see the sort of blinking out of local journalism all over the country? Well, it's it's a shame for exactly the reasons that you highlight. Society in general, driven by the internet and you know everything else in a technologically increasing society, is is more uh, more big picture, right? We we have fewer local services, fewer fewer news outlets, fewer news companies in general to look at. Even though we've got you know the internet, we've got cable news with you know the the possibility of launching as many news channels as we want we really only have fewer sources to go to right um from a a written news perspective you've got the the wire services that all the the newspapers just reprint um lower and lower budgets for investigative journalism so even though it seems like we have innumerable choices the wells from which that water is drawn get larger so that everybody's drawing from the same source and and we get far less diversity in in our news and far less investigative journalism that's where we're really failing i think um even even if it's uh, local versus regional um i i'd, I'd focus more on investigative versus just uh, regurgitating right and and it's it's great that that People like East Lansing Info are focused on on hyper local areas, and it's great that you're doing the investigative journalism that that gets behind things that otherwise would never be explored. Yeah, you know, when I founded East Lansing Info, that was a big part of my concern was that uh, we needed investigative journalism because, of course, if you simply take what they're telling you at city council or school board, that doesn't really tell you what's going on. So, speaking of that, Emily, since you cover school board and have been a reporter for us for a while now and are our managing editor, I was wondering if you would compare your experience as a historian in the Soviet archives, people may not know Emily has a PhD in Soviet history, and your experience dealing with the city of East Lansing in terms of the Freedom of Information Act. (laughs) Well, it's easier to get documents in Russia, frankly. Um, Granted, let's keep in mind, I study in the Russian Federation, not the Soviet oh, sorry. Union of documents. No, I study Soviet history. So it's Soviet documents that are now in care of the Russian Federation. And I'm looking at things up until 2002. So things that are fairly recently and aren't don't necessarily put the Russian government in the best light all the time. But there was only one document that I wasn't allowed to get because it had people's personal addresses. And it was a hard copy document from the 70s. It would be very hard for them to redact it. And there's no fees for me to go into the archives and see this stuff. And they have documents up until the 2010s, where in the city, it's often asking multiple times and then sometimes getting slapped with not insignificant fees to get those documents. So just to give you perspective, Brian, there was one instance where Emily asked for three months worth of information on a particular thing from the police department, and we were asked to turn over $5,000. So it's oh, that I kind, of, that kind of experience. I've, I've been involved in, in efforts to try and change those laws, and, and you know, the Michigan legislature uh, always finds a way to uh, allow these agencies to just run up the fees. It's, it's, 
it, it, it is one hand gives and the other takes away, right? They, on, on paper, FOIA is very broad, but when, uh, in order to exercise those rights, you need to have a lot of money. We should explain FOIA as the Freedom of Information Act. So, Brian, one of the things you talk about in your biography on, on your uh, firm's website is that you are interested in the future of media law and media. Can you talk with us a little bit about what you see as emerging in terms of um, changes over time and what we should be expecting in terms of how we get our information and how that is regulated? Sure. Uh, well, that's a, those are broad topics. I'll give a couple yes. uh, a couple examples, I guess. Um, I, I've always been fascinated, uh, always is a relative term, past 10 years anyway, uh, about media like uh, virtual and augmented reality. I've been able to do a fair amount in representing companies in that space and and kind of helping uh, nurture that uh, that new media that's not launching and, and becoming as ubiquitous as one might have expected 10 years ago um, as quickly as it, as it could. But I really do believe that we're going to experience more and more of what some people call the outer net, you know, the, the, the blending of digital and physical uh, data and displays and being able to interact with digital data in a, in a more uh, three-dimensional and context-specific way. So for that reason, I think that the media will really be a boon to hyper-local news sources like yourselves um, because you, one could interact with uh, digital media and, and digital information, you know, in situ, in, in the place where, where it actually is relevant in, in the real world. Um, so do you so, mean, for example, that somebody could be wearing virtual reality technology and actually walk through an area virtually? Either that, uh, in, in, a, in a way that lets you walk through distant areas uh, through your VR goggles, or uh, more likely, and in, in the long term, more commonly, uh, in an augmented reality sense, where you're actually in the physical place, but your digital glasses allow you to superimpose digital data on that local place. Wow, that will be really, really interesting. It sounds crazy sci-fi, but um, it, it is the type of technology that people have been working very seriously on for a long time that uh, people as significant as Tim Cook at Apple have said, like, this is the future, this is the very near future, and things that they're working to make happen. I think it's pretty exciting. I mean, one of the interesting things about the pandemic has been that we've shifted over to virtual meetings. And that's not been a terribly high tech thing. I mean, it's basically video conferencing, which we had decades ago. But it has really changed the ability of people to participate in a way and to share technologies in a way that even a year ago or two years ago, we weren't really doing at local government levels. And that's that's been rather fascinating to watch how that has changed the interaction. We have a lot more people, for example, showing up for public comment than before, because if they're home taking care of an elderly person or taking care of a child or they have a mobility disability that makes it hard to come in, or they happen to be out of town during a meeting, they're able to still participate. And that's really changed how our own city council has been working. Do you think that there's any hope that the Michigan legislature in the near future will be changing anything for the better for uh, the press, for example, possibly anti-slap legislation? And we should just explain what slap is. So a slap suit is a strategic lawsuit against public participation. It's a lawsuit launched kind of to try to shut somebody up. And uh, many states now have, or I think many states now have anti-slap suits. And could you talk a little bit about that with us? And is there any hope of Michigan moving in that direction? The answer is yes and no. Yes, I can talk about it. And no, there's not a lot of hope. 
So anti-slap uh, statutes are really procedural mechanisms, right? They don't necessarily grant any additional new substantive rights, and, and nor do we need them. Uh, but anti-slap statutes create a procedural mechanism in litigation um, whereby when someone brings these types of lawsuits, the, the defendant has an option to bring an early motion in front of the court, basically requiring that plaintiff to to justify the lawsuit and prove that they're not just harassing somebody uh, for exercising their, their, their freedom of speech and gives some consequences, some additional consequences to, to people who file lawsuits like that. And these are necessary and have proven useful in a variety of states exactly because there are plenty of people who have the resources and the inclination to use the courts as tools of intimidation uh, against people who uh, may not have the resources to defend themselves, uh, but are doing nothing other than exercising their First Amendment rights. And that's especially important for the media, especially important for hyperlocal and, and investigative journalists, because it's their job, uh, their constitutionally enshrined duty to go out there and poke the bear, if you will, to, to find out uncomfortable truths, to um, bring to light things that um, obviously, there are powerful people don't want to bring the light. That's the whole point of investigative journalism in the first place. And so it's those powerful people who will oftentimes turn the, the course to try to shut up that sort of reporting. Well, that is a great description of what we do. And because we operate on so little money, any kind of lawsuit brought against us can be quite expensive. And having any kind of tool to encourage the court system to allow us to do the kind of work we're doing for the public service is certainly important. So thanks so much, Brian. That's a great place for us to end because it describes really well why what we're doing is important and also why we need legal protections for freedom of the press in America um, and why America is different in some ways and places we can do better. So thanks so much for joining with us. We've been speaking with Brian Wassum of Warner, Norcross and Judd. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, that was just Brian Wassum who joined us to talk about freedom of the press and its protections under the First Amendment. But now we're going to segue to discuss a story that Alice Dreger, our publisher, recently wrote about a gas leak in her neighborhood. Um, so, Alice, do you want to give us some of the backgrounds? I know you more or less witnessed some of this firsthand. Sure. Emily, as you know, we're a hyper-local news organization, so we do sometimes end up reporting on very specific local things. But at the time this happened, I didn't think it was going to be an Eli story. I thought it was just a momentary um, freaky accident in my own neighborhood. And we could talk about why it became an Eli story. But basically, I was on the phone actually talking with another sister organization, a news organization out on the West Coast about um, their news and our news. And we were sharing information as peer organizations. And I got a text from Ann Nichols, who's our former managing editor and also our um, public editor now for Eli. And she said, guys running up and down the street evacuating people, gas leak or something like that. And I thought at first what she was texting me was something we needed to let people know about through Eli. And then suddenly I realized she was talking about our neighborhood because she and I live in the same neighborhood. I moved to the front of my house and immediately I could smell a very strong smell of gas in my own house. And my windows were open. It was a pleasant day. It was June 3rd. And I became very alarmed. I did not take my keys. I did not take my computer. I did not take the pets that we were babysitting for because I didn't have time. I simply ran out my back door and started banging on the back doors of my neighbors, telling them to get out. I could tell that this was an extraordinarily large gas leak. 
And indeed, the contractors, a company called 2D Aerial Cable Construction, were running up and down the street evacuating people. Um, you know, we have gas leaks sometimes in our neighborhood. Everybody does. And you get that little whiff, the sniff, sniff smell. This was something much, much bigger. And I knew from my own reading of news on my own prior reporting that this could be really dangerous. So once this whole accident and emergency was over, and fortunately nobody blew up, I ended up talking more with the contractors because they were here doing work and Consumers Energy was here for about five days, ending up having to dig up the whole area and fix the whole problem. And what I learned from them was that the line had not been marked, or at least that's what they told me. I don't, I can't take somebody's word for it when I'm doing reporting. But I decided that this was a significant enough leak. They told me that indeed the whole area could have blown up and it had in fact pooled in the sewer system just outside my house that we could have we could have lost multiple houses, multiple lives. It seemed to me significant enough that if what they were saying was right, that Miss Dig had been called out but had failed to mark the line, and that's what caused this major rupture, that I should look into it and document it as a case where the Miss Dig system failed. Can you explain what Miss Dig is briefly? Yes. So Miss Dig is a public safety system set up to allow people who are going to dig, whether they're homeowners in their own yard or they're a contractor, in this case for a cable laying company, to contact this centralized system, Miss Dig. It's I, you dial the number one eight hundred M I S S D I G, and basically it allows you to find out from them what's buried where. And the idea is that that way you won't hit a live electrical cable and electrocute yourself and you won't hit a gas main or you won't hit a water main. So in this case, the contractors had appropriately called out Mystig time and time again, but in fact, Mystig failed to mark these lines. And they told me when I interviewed them that they had been finding many lines that were unmarked by Mystig. And so they were nervous. And when they hit the line, obviously they knew that something very significant had happened. In fact, if you like, we could now play the 911 call so you could hear the contractor who hit the line calling in, trying to stay calm, but trying to also convey to 911, this was no minor gas leak. So let's have a listen to that. Ingham County 911, what's the location of your emergency? Yes, it's on Fern Street and Forest Street. We had a gas main, unmarked gas main, uh, while we are boring. All right. Andy, we just need help. Uh, uh, it, it, yes, blowing, hissing and blowing. Okay. Are you on Fern or on Forest? We are uh, around the corner of Forest and Fern. Okay. Stay on the line, okay? I just want to, I just, I'm, yep. I'm evacuating no, everybody fire, around fire, here. Fire department. You guys want to evacuate your house? Good. Uh, Fern, we had a, a gas main. main that was struck. You can hear hissing and blowing. Getting... Oh, All right, so uh, we're on the street or on a property? We're on the street. Yeah, you guys want to go on out for a little while, for a couple hours, I'm sure. All right, and how close is it to the house? It's close to one, two, three, four, four houses, five houses, probably 25, 30 feet. I'm evacuating people right now as we talk. Yeah. Yep. All right. Are you able to, let's see, are you there with your crew still? Yep. Okay. Are your vehicles still going? I shut them off. Okay, good. All right, so when you bore through it, do you know how deep? Probably about two and a half feet. Okay. 
And do you know how big of a line it is? Are you able to see that? If not, I can't even see it. No. That's okay. How far do you want me? uh, How how far should I have you guys go uh, away from here? And Seth, that's why we've got emergency responders coming out because I can't even qualify that. Is it a strong odor right now? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's blowing. Okay, so get back to a safe distance, um, you know, don't turn anything else on. We're going to notify consumers, get them out that way to shut off the gas as well, okay? Okay, yep. All right, sir. All right, thanks. Mm Bye. Bye. So what we know from that point forward was that the um, 911 operator ended up contacting the East Lansing Fire Department immediately and sounding an alarm. Within a few minutes, East Lansing Fire Department had left their facility. And within, as I recall, about 12 minutes, they were at our um, neighborhood. And they started roping off the area and and figuring out what to do next. Consumers Energy was also contacted. And they came out and were actually checking the basements in our area. Because our area is an old neighborhood and we have combined sewer systems. And sometimes when stuff gets into the sewer system, it backs up into the houses through the floor drains in the basements. So they were checking to see that there was not gas pouring into our houses. Unfortunately, there was not. The gas I had smelled in my living room appears to have come through the window, not through the basement. Sure. So this is something you witnessed firsthand because it was happening right in your front yard. So how did it this move from being a personal experience then into an Eli story. What made you think this was something that we needed to report on? Yeah. So what happened in the follow-up was I was so rattled by this. You know, I ended up basically staying up all night reading about Miss Dig and the failures that occur with Miss Dig. And I learned that in Michigan, Consumers Energy had been subject to a fine by the attorney general's office because of failure to appropriately um, handle requests for finding out where the gas lines were. It was a relatively small fine, frankly, for a company as big as them. It was in the area of, I think, $540,000, which is really not that big a fine for a place like Consumers Energy. Um, And so I started, well, I talked to my neighbors who had experienced the same thing, and they were just as rattled as I was. Um, We ended up talking for the Eli article to Amanda Tickner, who's my neighbor across the street, And her situation was really the most vivid in many ways because um, she was right next to the gas leak. So then I spoke to you and I asked you as managing editor, did you think this was a story? And as you recall, you and I had a conversation about that. Maybe you could talk about why you thought it was a story. Yeah, we didn't know what the story would be at that point. We knew there was issues with Miss Digg. Um, We were also curious about ELPD had not been on the scene. And then when they put out a Nixle alert over text and email, it misidentified the intersection and was telling people to avoid an intersection that was actually a block away. So I also was curious about how do 911 calls work? And if you smell gas, who do you actually call? And I think sometimes we assume just people in general, that it's easy to know what you should do in an emergency, and it's not. Um, And I think this was informed by in December, my partner and I had our carbon monoxide detector go off. And we did leave our home and stay in a hotel, but it was unclear to me, like, do you call 911? Do you call consumers? What do you do? Who shows up? So I thought 
the story might also get at that as well. And it turned out being mostly a story about Ms. Dig and how that system sometimes fails. Because my understanding is there's also third party contractors hired out to do it and they don't always come through on the job either is what something I learned from your reporting. Yes. And that's, I mean, I learned that as well. Um, just so just to answer the question of what should you do if you do smell a gas leak, it makes total sense to call 911, even if you think it's a small gas leak, because even if it seems like it's not that big, it's possible it will help provide information to 911 to triangulate a problem. So one of the things, Emily, as you know, that we discovered when I used the Freedom of Information Act to request copies of all of the 911 calls that occurred for this event I discovered that somebody had called in from four blocks away saying that they were smelling gas. And that was this gas leak. So that tells you how huge the gas leak area was in terms of it being in the air because somebody four blocks away was calling it in. So even though you may smell a faint smell of gas, it makes sense to dial 911, tell them where you are, tell them where the gas leak is. If they're only getting a mild sense, then they're going to probably call consumers out. But in a case where they're getting lots of calls in one area, that helps inform them that there's a vivid emergency. So it always makes sense to dial 911 if you find out something like that, that you're smelling gas in the air. Yeah. And we also thought, I mean, this is a story about infrastructure, but to what extent you live in a historic district, Alice, this is older infrastructure um, and perhaps not mapped as well was also something we thought might come up in reporting. We did think that. And as it turns out, that was not the biggest issue because apparently the gas lines, they are supposed to know at least where the gas lines are. And this was a case where the gas lines simply weren't marked. So we also use the Freedom of Information Act, which allows us to get any public records, um, sometimes with redactions. But we used it also to try to find out if ELPD had done anything. And the answer was no. The only thing ELPD had done in this case was send out one Nixle alert, which, as Emily noted, had the wrong address on it. And then we also um, used Freedom of Information Act to find out what records the fire department had, which was quite interesting. And in the classic case, the East Lansing Fire Department did not even answer my FOIA request as required by law. I had to nag them after the deadline they were supposed to respond to me and get them to give me the materials. This has been the case over and over again with East Lansing Fire Department is that we have to ask multiple times, which we're not supposed to have to do under the law. Um, but we've had real frustrations with that. But we did finally get the information. We're able to document what it is they had experienced, which was very interesting to read and knew what they had done to manage the emergency because they, they managed the emergency appropriately in the way that they dealt with it. Yeah. And you had mentioned calling 911 to help dispatch triangulate an issue. I think that's something we do with FOIA sometimes is you yes. FOIA Ingham County 911, ELPD, ELFD, and then you take all these different sources and then kind of mesh them together to see what happened and what didn't happen. Right. And then in addition to that, I did straightforward interviews with Consumers Energy, with the contractor who had been laying the cable and hit the line with the neighbors. And I also tried to contact um, and get a comment out of the contractor for Miss Dig who failed to mark the line, but they, of course, did not respond to my requests, which did not surprise me too much because when there's a mistake made, a lot of times people don't really want to talk with you. But we tried. <laughs> um, well, we have about a minute left, Alice. So I was wondering if you had any closing thoughts on this story. 
Just that, you know, as we look at Surfside, Florida, and the horrible tragedy that occurred there, I'm really struck by the notion that the press is part of the safety network in America. We are part of what helps keep people safe. Things like reporting on failures of safety systems is part of how we get those safety systems fixed. So I just think it's really important for people to understand the powerful protections that exist in America for the press as we try to do our job. The good reporters in America, and there are thousands of them, are trying really hard to work in public service to make sure that people's rights are respected and that people stay safe. And that's part of what we take really seriously at East Lansing Info as we do investigative news is trying to find out how to keep you safe. Well, thank you for delving into this story in depth, and thank you, listeners, for giving us a listen. If you'd like to read this story or other stories, you could visit us online at eastlansinginfo.news. That's eastlansinginfo.news. Have a happy Independence Day. East Lansing Insider is brought to you by ELI on Impact 89FM. We are on the web at eastlansinginfo.news and impact89fm.org. Thanks for listening.